peace and grace and welcome back to one-on-one with the cannon podcast show brought to you by wcanmedia.com where tomorrow's services are here today with me here in the podcast studio is a good friend of mine jack hall and he has a guest and we will be talking about a very intense topic sextortion all of this and much more right here on one-on-one with the cannon podcast show coming up right after this my name is Tierney Grayson, Chief of Talent Affairs and Programming for WCAN-TV and Discovery Channel Portal Producer, Wayne Fitzpatrick. If you are a business or a company looking for a high quality production studio to meet your commercial advertising needs, look no further than WCAN-TV because tomorrow's services are here today. For more information, please contact our office at tvwcan at yahoo.com. Again, that's tvwcan at yahoo.com. WCAN TV, the better choice. Russ Van Warmer here at wcanradio.com. Join me every Monday night from 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we will talk about everything and anything. You can get involved by downloading the WCAN Radio app. Just visit the Apple or Google store to download for your mobile devices. That's Monday nights from 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on WCANradio.com. Welcome back to one-on-one with the Canon Podcast Show. Jack, how you doing? Hey, Wayne, doing great today. Doing great. I'm glad we are doing great. Let's do the NBA thing real quick. The ball is in your court. Hey, thank you very much. Wayne, uh, there is a topic uh, I know you're familiar with our campaign over the course of the last year and a half that we've looked at educating the community on several very important issues from human trafficking to autism awareness and making sure that the law enforcement communities and the public were up on that. We have a new topic uh, today that we're going to be looking at because it's becoming a very serious topic in the attention of the entire uh, news media and also the public called sextortion. You made reference to the word earlier, and today with me, I brought Ken Cuglin of Digital Forensics Corporation. And uh, Ken has, uh, and his company, have been in the business for a while now in regards to investigating sextortion cases. But before, Ken, we get into you and what Digital Forensics does, can you explain to the audience what is sextortion? I absolutely can. So sextortion is the act of blackmailing someone over over uh, their nude images or nude videos or suggestive conversations. Uh, and this usually happens online. Uh, exchange photos and the person that you exchange those photos with uh, is, is not who they say they are. Uh, and it turns into a blackmail situation uh, and they will begin demanding money, sometimes upwards and over five, ten, twenty thousand dollars in some cases, depending on how badly they really need it. But it is a, a tremendous problem, huge problem. Now, you use the term blackmail, and this takes me to what you're talking about, to another potential term, catfishing. Okay. Is this like the same thing when somebody's pretending to be somebody on the other end of this? Uh, it has a lot of those same elements. Uh, catfishing uh, can be, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, a little bit more innocent sometimes, maybe just a flirty thing or uh, just to get some information from someone. It doesn't always end in blackmail. Whereas sextortion, 100% of the time, ends in blackmail. So a much more serious offense that's going on here. Absolutely. Embarrassment to the person who sent pictures out and then could also be much more detrimental at the end of the case, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, before we get into that, uh, 
Ken, why don't you give us a little bit about your background? And in addition to that, um, how does digital forensics assist families and individuals with sextortion cases? Sure. Um, so I've been with Digital Forensics uh, Corporation for about five years now. Uh, I started in the role of an investigator. I was someone that was basically taking control over uh, our clients' accounts and dealing with these sextortionists head on. After a few years of doing that, I did transition that role into what I'm doing now, which is more community outreach, marketing, uh, social media management, things like that. Uh, and as a follow-up to your uh, question, um, what we're doing as, as a company right now to help people is try to spread as much awareness as possible uh, and try to help as many people as we can with information. And I'm sure you're probably aware that the um, governor of the state of Ohio and the lieutenant governor have proposed in the budget bill that went to the General Assembly about a new law that would come into place in regards to individuals under the age of 16, if they're going to be involved in a social media platform, that they would have to have parental consent. Yes, I, I have heard that. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think that's a half bad idea. Uh, a lot of the victims of sextortion, some of the most affected by this are children, uh, usually around that age range. So anything that can limit their exposure to this sort of crime would be highly beneficial. Well, can you walk right into the next question that I was going to ask you? With that being said, are you saying that the adolescent age range is the most vulnerable group when exposed to a sextortion issue? Absolutely. Um, and there's a couple reasons why. The main reason why is I mean they're kids, number one. But then beyond that, uh, occasionally when, when, these, when these young people do get extorted or sextorted, uh, they do have the means to begin paying at first. But then after they do run out of money, their allowance or whatever it may be, it can turn into other serious threats where they're stealing from their parents and doing other things and creating more issues for themselves if they need to do that. If they can't do that, it does become a tremendous burden on their mental health. And we do see, unfortunately, uh, a, a high rise lately in, in suicides and things like that because of these cases. And we're not seeing that with adults. We're seeing that more with children. Okay, now you bring up an interesting point. You talk about, you know, them going through their allowance and being able to pay for this initially. Um, I don't see, at least in my mind, when I was a kid, I, you know, had a paper out, right. right? And so therefore, you know, made whatever the amount of money was at the time. What are we talking about on these initial amounts that they're being asked to pay? It varies. Um, I've seen as low as $5. Uh, today, you know, give me five dollars today, and when you have fifty more dollars, give it to me then. Uh, I've seen them demand a thousand dollars. It really varies on the, I guess, the caliber of the suspect at, at, that we're dealing with, and basically what they know about their victim. If the, you know, their victim says, "Hey, I don't have any money. I don't have a job. I don't have anything. I can't do anything for you." Maybe they'll say five dollars. Maybe they'll say ten dollars. I've even seen them say, "Well, go into your mom's purse and steal the credit card and give me the number." Mm -hmm. I've seen them do that. So it really varies. Every criminal's different, but uh, the the lowest I've seen uh, paid is five dollars. Okay, and of course, your investigations you talk about uh, having to have some knowledge of your target. These adolescents that are getting on social media sites, texting, whatever other type of apps. So when we talk about initially hitting them up for five or ten dollars, okay, something that they don't have to tell mom and dad about, something that they don't have to tell that that's easy to come up right. with five or ten dollars. What happens though when we go into dad's wallet, mom's purse, and we grab the credit card? How serious do those cases get? Those can get very, very serious. Uh, that's usually when the parents do find out, but at that point, it's it's usually too late because now they've paid uh, or given their credit card information or 
Uh, sometimes I've seen checks or all sorts of things or cash stolen to go get gift cards or money grams and things like that. So at that point, it, it, it then gets into the hundreds, maybe even thousands of dollars that you know have been paid. And, and once you pay them once, even that initial $5, they're never going to go away. They're just going to keep coming back and coming back and coming back. So once the parents do get involved, then the parents are sometimes like, okay, well, how do we fix this? If they don't know enough about how to remedy the situation, then they begin paying as well, just think, thinking the idea or thinking the uh, suspect is going to go away. And, and that's the wrong idea. Okay, because Ken, one would probably think that, all right, you just call Discover Card, for example, and say, hey, this was a transaction that was not authorized. This is what happened. And we just cut it off. Mm -hmm. Don't we just end the whole situation there or what that, happens? In a perfect world? Uh, yeah, that would be I, that would be great. You know, and the the criminal would say, oh, I guess, you know, Discover got us. I guess we're done with you. No, that's not what happens. Uh, they get angry and they will either release that content uh, that they have gotcha. or they'll make more egregious threats then, and they'll make more serious threats and force you a different way to pay that money. OK, now with that, say, for example, they get more angry. The parents then, do they have a venue right now? And of course, from the law enforcement perspective that I'm familiar with. All right, we're looking at uh, possibly coming forward to the police station with a credit card fraud, mm -hmm. you know, type of case. And then we start delving into what led up to these charges being. Do you find from your experience that that is where the disconnect is coming, that how much do parents or the children want to admit to law enforcement in regards to what they believe would just be, this is an underlying case of credit card fraud, but it's really not. Something was the precursor, the catalyst for this to all happen. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of times, too, uh, it's it's embarrassing for not just the, the child victim, but also the parents. They don't want to say, I wasn't paying attention. I, I wasn't watching my, my child close enough and now this happened. So somebody stole my credit card information and kind of leave it at that. And they don't often dive all the way into what the real root cause is, which is the sextortion, this other much more terrible problem, I, I think. But even with that said, even once if they do go with that information to to law enforcement, hey, my credit card was used illegally to pay this scammer in somewhere because they were sextorting my son. That really stops at that point at, at most local law enforcement levels. There's not much that they can do regarding the sextortion. They can probably help a little bit with the credit card stuff, but they can't really help with the sextortion stuff. Gotcha. And I know we're going to have you back yes. in part two of uh, this podcast series that we're going to be doing, but particularly... How do you work directly with law enforcement to be able to assist them to get to the bottom of these cases? Uh, we just try to provide as much evidence as possible. Uh, and digital evidence is some of the, the most important evidence you can, you can uh, obtain. So we're looking at IP addresses, geolocations, account information, things like that, that will point a needle in the direction of whoever is truly behind all of this and or, and or where they're located uh, explicitly. A lot of these groups do work or a lot of these criminals do work in large groups. Uh, so if we can at least pinpoint a, a, an area or a group or a, a crew that they're working out of, it sometimes is helpful uh, to, to law enforcement. Uh, but our main goal is just to get as much information, as much evidence as possible to point law enforcement in the, in the right direction should uh, they be able to you know, ascertain this person and get this, take, bring this person in. Okay, from my perspective, doing this job for 32 years, when we look at an organized group 
we look at a racketeering influence corrupt organization statute. We look at RICO, big fancy term. A lot of people understand that from the federal level. RICO is also available at the state level in Ohio as well, too. However, from your experience in dealing with local law enforcement, because I know your company is based in the greater Cleveland area. Correct. How many departments have you dealt with from your company that understands the complexity of this RICO statute and actually how to conduct this investigation? And the other thing I'm going to take a leap here with you, Ken, but I'm assuming these groups also are not generally in the Cleveland area. We're probably dealing with people since this is on the World Wide Web. It's on the Internet. It's through these applications. I'm sure this happens throughout the entire world. Correct. Yes. As far as local law enforcement, uh, knowing how to deal with these these groups, zero. Uh, there, there's not a lot. Of, That's what I was yeah, afraid of. Yeah. And, and it's it's not to any fault of their own. It's just very new. It's very mm-hmm. new. It's on on um, explored territory, unexplored crime. And to your other point, yeah, most of these groups uh, are in other places in the world. Primarily, you're looking at uh, Lagos, Nigeria, Africa, the Ivory Coast, the Philippines, places like that where. Even their local law enforcement is struggling to, even their national law enforcement, they're struggling to put a rein on, on these groups. So, And even when they get a tip from local yeah. law enforcement or the Federal Bureau of Investigation, do you know what approximately any success rate is on there being communication back and forth on the prosecution of a case or that maybe even they looked into it on the other side? Um, there are a lot of cases, especially particularly in the Philippines, uh, where they the Law enforcement there are going after these groups and bringing these groups down. They charge them, but they don't really connect them to any particular crimes. They uh, that you know, stateside or, or otherwise, they just say you are dealing with this sextortion mm-hmm. scam and you're going to jail for that. And it's, you, they're usually in and out. Uh, but other parts of the world are not doing much. So yeah, unfortunately, it's, it's one of those things where it, everyone uh, involved is is very good at what they do, and they're very good at uh, getting away. From, from those types of scenarios with law enforcement. Yeah, and unfortunately, um, I've been doing this for 32 years. I actually, my, my dad made me get involved in computers. So right. I was never good at math, so therefore I never went into computer science. But I was one of the first breed of law enforcement that came onto the job that knew something about computers. So I got assigned to the U.S. Secret Service uh, Electronic Crimes Task Force. We were involved in all this. But the thing that always scared me, we as law enforcement always seemed to be catching up And fortunately, we would get our training from the private sector many times to be able to investigate these cases. Mm -hmm. So uh, with that in mind, I appreciate everything, Ken, that you've told us to this point. And I know we only have so much time for uh, each podcast. And uh, this is part one that we've discussed this. We'll be going more into detail on the actual specifics of the investigation in part two. But uh, thank you very much for joining us today. And I appreciate you, Ken Cuglin from Digital Forensics, for being with us this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please direct all correspondence to Canon Podcast at yahoo.com. And always remember, the road to success is always under construction. Until all in one. Take care. <laughs>